Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the Picture Palace in the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo will at last engage in that struggle among all struggles, that conflict that drives movie fandom wild with exhilaration and exuberance, that time-honored tradition that allows us as human beings to pit two figureheads against each other in an arena of pop culture and just say, fight! That's right, the feud. Hollywood's feuds, whether genuine or constructive, Constructed peak our curiosity and our most primal urges, and none was ever more so legendary than that of two of Hollywood's most powerful and dynamic women by the coming of their twilight years. What would start as a mere rivalry would become a feud by the time they wrapped their only time on screen together. That's right, boys and girls. Tonight, we will be thrust into the world of jealousy, torture, and endless bouts of regret and delusion in Robert Aldrich's 1962 hit, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. See the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Sister, sister, oh so fair. Why is there blood all over your hair? Whatever happened to baby Jane? To seek the answer to that question, we will follow a man plotting a murder. Highly specialized work. But Robert Aldridge has considerable experience in such matters. He has a dozen successful pictures to his credit. His stars are Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. The scene, an Italianate villa in a once fashionable section of Los Angeles. Its halls, once crowded with the bright, the beautiful, and the celebrated, now echo only to hectic whispers, the insistent call of a buzzer better left unanswered, a telephone that has become an object of fear, a supper tray that will not be touched, a window barred against the world, a hammer, a mute scrawl crying for help. From these elements, director Aldrich has fashioned a motion picture with a curious title, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Betty Davis is Jane Hudson. Joan Crawford is Blanche Hudson. But we must warn you, if you're long-standing fans of Miss Davis and Miss Crawford, this motion picture is quite unlike anything they have ever done. It is a bold essay in the art of the macabre, a venture to the ultimate reaches of terror. A motion picture definitely not for the squeamish. And we beg you, as the tension builds to the screaming point, as shock after shock assaults your senses, try to remember that this is only a motion picture. Try and remember. 
remember. No, we uh, we can't show you anymore. Only when you see whatever happened to Baby Jane will you know. And the answer is total suspense. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, in 1962, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford were pitted together on screen in a battle of the egos that would carry legends both on and off screen. Yet beneath the needless desire to watch powerful women battle each other is the stories of two powerful women. One who trailblazed in many respects and the other who trailblazed in her own respects, but both carrying the baggage that we consistently discuss within society's dilemmas today. But even more overlooked is the film itself, which carries a sinister tale wrapped in the sheen of Hollywood elegance turned deformed. How do we see Bette, Joan, and the film itself in today's climate, and what lessons can we see in the works of today when it comes to A-list stars in perceived B-material? Well, to answer that, we have a return guest whose enthusiasm, knowledge, and insight on Breakfast at Tiffany's made us all want to go say, go fuck yourself, Mickey Rooney. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the show, Abella Bala. Hi, Zach. Thanks for having me back. Welcome back. Wow. You 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 have no idea of the fire you started with the Ballyhoo. No, 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 no fire. You had uh you had a very well received episode. Um that's funny. I mean I'm I well tell me, tell me the fire. So no, it, it was more just like people wanting to get that insight into something that is perceived in that problematic sense. And having a frank and honest discussion when it comes to it. And I think especially when it comes to breakfast at Tiffany's, one thing that we have a trouble with is trying to suss out our love for the main story while addressing Mickey Rooney. (laughs) Um, And I think that considering what we had handed to us, we handled it very well, but you especially, and you brought up points that needed to be brought up when it comes to addressing this material of the past. Uh, specifically with one of the best questions that I heard was, if they didn't do this stereotype, what stereotype would they have used? It was one of the like most on-point observations I've ever heard on this show. So that's the that's the fire you lit. It was the fire under my butt to start looking at some of these things a different way. So it's it's an amazing Thank thing. You, you <laughs> um, Thank but- you, Zach. Thank you, Zach. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, I I um I enjoy chatting with you and I I think like on and off air um, it's interesting to like other it's it's interesting because you have such a um you have such an analytical point of view and you have such a you do such a good job at sort of describing something with words that it just it makes it like brings up these questions you like lay it out and then I can look at it and like ask the question. And that a lot of us are probably thinking, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's, it's because of the way that you present the whole story that it makes it really easy to look at it. Like being like, Oh, well, what are all the perspectives that one could have? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you, and we, so like, this is kind of leading into our discussion for today. Um, when we were talking about what would you want to talk about on the show? This was another of the films that was on your initial list. And 
there's a lot of angles to the to the film Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and not all of them pertaining explicitly to Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. A lot of it has to do with this kind of story and a subgenre that I knew existed but didn't realize had a term. Um, and we'll get to that terminology in a second. But I do want to catch the Ballyhoo listeners up with you. What have you been up to since your episode debut? What's been going on in your life? Oh, my God. Um I'm I'm kind of taking a like a a bit of a break when it comes to acting right now. I'm just kind of focusing on comedy a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um I think mainly because uh you know while while acting is is amazing and I love, you know, I love filmmaking as an art, the film industry itself is is exhausting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's exhausting. Um, it's, it's not, you know, it gets very convoluted. The bigger the budget, the bigger the production, the more, the higher the stakes. And sometimes I think that that takes away from the art form and, and the ability to actually say something like worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with stand up, I, I can literally go up any night of the week and, say something that I want to say without having to depend on anybody else to, you know, and I can see in real time, like, how does it land? Yeah. Are people receptive? Is it working? So, yeah. So I'm kind of focusing on, on writing a a new stand-up act right now, which I'm really excited about because it's going to explore um, again, like, you know, it's a comedic perspective, but it's a comedic perspective on, on shit. That's not necessarily comedic, like mental health and, Mm -hmm. you know, well, um, but those are the things that we need comedic perspectives on because they're the ones that help us alleviate our own pain. That's the, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. the it's the reason why comedy exists is to help us escape from that pain. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, too, because like and there's some comics that are definitely doing this right now where they're, you know, kind of diving a little bit deeper into a more educated perspective on mental health while still making it funny, which is kind of what I want to want to dive into just because I've had to go, I've had to do so much like legwork to understand what the fuck is going on. (laughs) Like just generally speaking, what the fuck is going on? Like overall in life with myself and my own mind, you know, in my relationships, what, you know, why, why my childhood was what it was, why people behave the way that they do all those, what the fuck moments Mm -hmm. um, that I, I want to like share some of the shit that I've learned because I feel like it's so like, I wish that people would have an easy, like have that stuff available more easily because I see so many people that are like asking the same questions. Like I was asking like five years ago and I see them going through their pain mm-hmm. of having to discover that. And it sucks. Yeah. And I feel for people and I'm like, oh, God, I wish I could just like be like, no, like you don't have to do all of that. Like, you can cut out this five years of like, like floundering and just skip to this part and actually like save yourself some time and some heartache. But I guess that's part of it too. It's, it's interesting. Cause like, that's also ironic. I, like I, I tend to be a little codependent, mm-hmm. um, which nobody knows what the fuck that is. Like codependency sounds like you just like need to be around people all the time, but it's actually a more like complex issue. And one of the things that happens is that people want to like, like a codependent thing would be like me wanting to show you or teach you how to do something instead of you having to learn it yourself. Right. Yeah. 
it would be, so it's like, it, it, it would be like it, it would be like depending on somebody else to produce a podcast and you just kind of which is kind of like how I um, operated with the real nerds to a certain extent up until I started my own shows was just like I'm just a personality there but I you know depended on them for me to have a voice outside of my living room and now I'm just like well no you can do this yourself and it's learning how to create that space for yourself and stand up is 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 one of many ways that you can get your voice and your art out there without the expense and the, uh, the, 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 the needless amount of journeying and path pathfinding when it comes to film production at times. Um, I specifically, it seems like I, I would imagine as an actor getting from gig to gig and audition to audition, it takes a lot out of you to where that personal passion gets lost at certain points. And you have to yeah, and I think rediscover totally, totally. Yeah, sorry to cut you off. No, you're yeah, fine. totally. Yeah, like I mean, that's exactly it. I think the other portion of that is like, um, finding you know sometimes like I think acting is like you're channeling your magic in the context of another kind of character and story. You're sort of leaving yourself. You're bringing yourself with you, but you're kind of leaving yourself or sometimes you use the character as like a, as a shield or like a, I don't know. There's, it's, it's less, it's less impact when you stand in front of a fucking, like stand up is like the most brutal, like form of self-expression because it's, it forces you to really just, I mean, you're standing, there's no barrier between you and these people. Like you're here, I'm there. Like, are you guys gonna fucking boo me off? Like, I anything could happen, right? So, it's kind of like, I feel like I've I've noticed this a lot. It's not, it doesn't, you know, carry all the time. But some of the comics that I that I see go and act sometimes are able to access something that sometimes actors can't access, which is that they're able to like, they're not trying to do something else I don't know like they're they're not trying to put on a character or trying to they're not like indicate it's just like they have a perspective and they're just saying it mm -hmm. whereas sometimes with acting we put this filter on because we have to be in a character we have to be in the context of a story and so we lose some of the best parts of ourselves. and I think that was like one thing that I mean again I'm sure like the really skilled actors like uh, acting is such a lifelong skill like you really it takes so long to like I mean, some people, it depends. Everybody's different, I guess. But yeah, I think it, it takes a long time for people to like really understand how to find their magic within the context of, you know, and not like to dim to serve a story, mm -hmm. to preserve their life. Whereas I think, you know, when you're doing stand up, the only thing that you really have is like who you are. Yeah. And, and then the jokes, of course. But like that depends on who you are, you yeah. know? Yeah. You've got to, you, you have to have a, you, you have to be able to tune in both your personality and the humor all at the same time, which is why I, I find stand up such an admirable art form because it's requiring you to engage with an audience using only virtually yourself. Like the, the jokes are one thing you can construct a joke. Um, whether it's funny or not will be determined by, a, a multitude of factors but if your personality yeah. isn't there then it's no different than being a vaudevillian not unlike what baby jane hudson was except she's a dancer you're a comedian you can use material that you bought from somebody a writer at the time 
or you could come up with your own jokes. But unless your personality's behind it, it's it's what differentiates stand up from comedic routines or comedic performers. Like a stand up is writing the material based on their experience, whereas a comedic performer is being given material and then they use their personality or their particular flourish on the material. And then that's what makes yeah. it work for them. Yeah. And I mean, the actor does the same thing, but like with acting, there's so much more obligation, I feel like, whereas like with stand up, there's no, you know, and the irony is like the best actors know how to like, like detach themselves from obligation. So in a sense, like, I think that like stand up is a really wonderful acting exercise because it teaches you the thing that works the most is the most honest thing usually for stand-up people can smell it a mile away if mm-hmm. you're not being honest you know what i mean i I, th- I think it's interesting that given the given the digital age we live in where you can upload that same kind of routine on there i do love that you're still engaging with a live audience for it because i feel like that that's something that you don't necessarily have to do anymore but i'm glad that it still exists um because that community aspect is still there um and so you are exposing yourself directly to people without the uh filter quote unquote of a digital piece of technology like a camera or uh even a podcast mic like doing this in front of a live show a live audience would be such a different experience by comparison but you get to go out there and you get to do your performances live in front of people and you get to hear right away What's going on? Yes. And I, what I love about it, yeah, that's exactly it. And what I love about it is that it really kind of trains you to, it's just such a, I mean, it's such a really like, again, it's a brutal fucking performance, like, like art form because it really trains you to, um, you have to like build a relationship with this. You have to have a healthy relationship with the audience to be successful at it, you know, and you can't expect anything. You can't like expect you're going to fucking like, basically like you are there to like present a possibility of what they might find entertaining. And then they are the ones that determine whether they find it entertaining, you know, yeah. like you can think it's funny all day long and they might not, you know? Um, so it's very humbling in that way too, you know? And I think, I think that's, I don't know. I think it's like very, it's a wonderful reminder that like, that's like really what we're doing as, as artists and filmmakers too. Like you have to have your artistic integrity all day because if you don't, then you don't even fucking stand a chance. Right. But at the end of the day, the market does decide what, you know, is the value. And so you almost have to kind of like, it's like an experiment each time you create something to be like, do you guys like this? Like, does this work for you? (laughs) And then you start to study like, well, what, what does work you know it's i'm sure it's probably pretty similar to podcasting right Mm -hmm. yeah you 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 have to i i have had to learn through trial and error about how this show functions because there there is a lot of guesswork when it comes to how this how this particular show was going to operate and what was going to be more emphasized on or not. And a big part of it I've learned is that we are providing a perspective that is devoid of the 30 to 40 years of fandom that has already existed for these pieces of the past. We're, we're, we're bringing in a perspective that has had uh, the wide, the wide gamut of films, whether from the golden age or from the American new wave or up into the indie scene of the nineties 
you know, we have such a swath of content and to get a perspective from people around our age range on these films and also talking to people who grew up as fans of them in the 60s, 70s and 80s, that's it's that's what I've been learning is, is that I want to hear about people's experiences with the material and what it means to them while also going into production information, biography, uh, lessons that we can learn from it. But it took a lot of time figuring out what it was and learning, you know, what audiences tuned in and tune out for. A lot of people didn't like that the show was over three hours long on any given episode. And I just had to decide <laughs> that doesn't matter to me. Like it's it, it, it sometimes it comes down to like, well, I'm doing the show, so I will make that call. But it's not out of snarkiness. It is just out of like, no, this is the proper way to tell this story. And sometimes your personal approach to it will determine what's the proper way to tell the story. Um, and and within that, I feel like it's funny that you brought, sp- speaking of this long time frame, Abella, um, you know, the first episode we did together on Breakfast at Tiffany's was a was a pretty close to, was a good close to three hour, nice, just wonderful discussion about a film that holds holds dear to a lot of people's hearts. Um, whereas the film we're talking about today, I I have a hunch, and I could be very wrong, that this film has a much more limited appeal range. <laughs> Uh, what what makes you think that? I'm I th- curious. I think, and I hear me out on this, um, because uh, I I was thankfully proven sort of wrong by this because my girlfriend, when I told her I was going to be doing this episode with you, she's like, "Oh yeah, I saw whatever happened to Baby Jane. We watched it in theater class," and I was like, "That's mm. funny. I didn't watch it in theater class, but I saw it pretty early on in my exposure to horror films." Because that's what mm. I went in for was a horror film. But I have this theory that there are some films from the 50s and 60s that are in this range that if you didn't watch it in a theater class or you didn't discover it as a film fan, you might not know of its existence. Now, yeah. there is an exception to this particular film in that there was a miniseries made about it created by Ryan Murphy. Yes. Um, that was the reason why I knew about this, actually. Really? Because, like, I, yeah, because I am not, I'm, I have to be honest. I'm like, I'm such a, like, I don't do my homework. I'm like a person that, like, <laughs> I, you know, I'm like a bad student. Like, aside from like going down like some weird, like, spiral where I'm like, oh my God, I need to like learn everything about this one thing. And usually it's because I like want to do something. Like, it's like, oh, I want to do X. Like I want to do stand up, so let me buy every book that like exists on stand up and research it like to the fucking ends of the world, you know. But that's the only time I ever really do that kind of shit. Um, and so, anyways, like I, I thought it was interesting. A friend of mine was watching um, the miniseries, and he was like obsessively watching it. He was, uh, we used to bartend together, and he would watch it while he was closing out tabs. And I was like, listen, he was like so intently obsessed with it that I was just like, what are you watching? Like, what is happening? What? And he like kind of told me like the story behind it. And I thought even just the name was so interesting and like the story behind the story. And there were so many elements. So I felt like there was like this like mystique behind the story. And I also thought it was fucking weird that I hadn't <laughs> heard of it before. You know what I mean? I'm like, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like I get that I didn't go to Andrew Houston's fucking film history class ever, but like I'm shocked. <laughs> Shout out to our friend Andrew. 
<laughs> Sorry, Andrew. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> I owe him a call. Um, does he listen to this? Does I, he listen I to the show? I have no idea, but he was stalking my Instagram for a little while. So I've been like, oh, okay. should I talk to him? Like, I don't know. Anymore. Send him this episode. <laughs> yeah. That, I, we'll, we'll, I'll send it over to him and be like, this episode's dedicated to you on accident. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but that's interesting that you say that up, like, that you you felt it was weird that you didn't know it existed. I, I'm going to, I want to rest your mind at ease. Um, the way I found out about this film, in addition to the horror element was seeing our two leading ladies emblazoned on the screen. And my assumption was, well, this must be a big deal. Like they've always been in pictures together. And this was like their swan song together. In fact, this is the only time they were on screen together. So it wasn't like a Hope and a Crosby or a Martin and Lewis. This is, this was like an event picture in certain respects. And when you watch the movie, when I watched the movie, the imagery and the horror elements balled me over more than the reputation of Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Like, at a, at a certain age in my life, I kind of was indifferent about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. I wasn't tuned into what made them so great. Uh, well, I take that back. I knew much more about Joan Crawford, but not for reasons that she'd want me to know about her. <laughs> oh, okay, why? Well, so... That we're let's get this off. What the, dirt do you got on Joan Crawford? It's not Dad? the dirt I have. It's the dirt that her daughter Christina had. Um, oh. So let's get this right off the bat, ladies and gentlemen. Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, in addition to being legendary actors, have been noted to be terrible, terrible parents. <laughs> um, and uh, uh-uh, really? Yeah, really. Um, if anybody, I if, mean, I can't say that I'm like, I can't say that I'm that surprised. Like, I. <laughs> <laughs> which is another topic I wanted to discuss on like on, on this episode because like the mental health thing like mm-hmm. Jesus Christ like so much to talk about on that but like the child you know child actor deal like actors in general we're gonna get into that too because the 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 child actor element of the film itself is alarming when watching it today Whereas when I was younger, I didn't really give it a second thought. I was just like, well, it's just the catalyst for this bigger, bigger plot about an old woman going crazy. But um, to get it, to get those, to get the stories out of the way, Christina Crawford, Joan Crawford's adopted daughter, wrote a memoir called Mommy Dearest, which many people would know as a 1981 film starring uh, the one and only Faye Dunaway where it has the classic line, no wire hangers ever, Um, which when I finally saw that movie, not too long after seeing this movie, my reaction was, oh, shoot, why do people make fun of that line? As it turns out, similar to what happened to Baby Jane, uh, it it was considered upon its release to be a rather campy movie. Um, And that delivery as such is considered campy. What's not campy is Joan's reported behavior towards her daughter um, that relate that related to basically flat out abusive, just a flat out abusive mother. Um, and not everybody agrees with the account that Christina had of her mother. Even Betty Davis said, I was not Mrs. Miss Craw- Crawford's biggest fan, but wisecracks to the contrary, I did and still do respect her talent 
What she did not deserve was that detestable book written by by her daughter. I've forgotten her name. Horrible. Um, and there were more. Um, uh, there were other people who were disputing Christina's elements of the story, not the least of which were people like Bob Hope, Barbara Stanwyck, uh, Anne Blythe, uh, Van Johnson, and Myrna Loy. Um, and, uh, you know, when we talk about a figure such as Joan Crawford or even Betty Davis, who has her own baggage when it comes to her children and being a less than ideal parent, um, which one of her big issues was she had a child uh, that she gave that she had to put in a mental institution. And it seems like that they kind of just the the child was less than uh, looked after after that point or even uh, cared about by Betty. Um, but regardless of that, it brings up an interesting question in talking about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, because for all the terrible things that have followed their story, they have they did a lot to trailblaze for actresses to be self-reliant, independent, and be able to dictate their own vision. So it's a very weird give and take when it comes to uh, that particular discussion. Um, Abella, here's a question I have for you. Was this the first Betty Davis and or Joan Crawford movie that you'd ever seen? It's the first one that I like actually focused on and sat down and watched. Like I've been in the room with so many movies in my life, but I, my attention span, I was recently diagnosed with ADHD. Mm. Um, and I think that it like checks out just because in the way that I watch movies, cause I like, I'll put something on, you know, like I watched a little bit of every movie, but I, there's a lot of movies I haven't like finished or, or, you know, so to answer your question, yes, this is the first one because mm. this was the assignment and I was like, I need to finish it <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, oh. out of respect. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's totally fine because, you know, it, it gives you a fresh perspective on, on where you see them in this movie. It's, it would also be an encouragement to explore their past, which we'll do a little bit of here today before we talk about the film. Um, full disclosure to the Ballyhoo, while I did do extensive notes on both Betty and Joan, we're not going to talk about every single element of their lives because one, they are independent of each other, strong powerhouses that deserve their own dissections pertaining to a movie that stars only them. Um, I will tell you that there are similarities in their upbringing, not the least of which is they both had fathers that left the family when they were rather young. Um, Betty, uh, Betty herself uh, became enamored with the theater in 1926 when she saw The Wild Duck with Peg Entwistle, whilst Joan was an avid dancer who aspired to become a dancer. Um, both had their own climbing up the wall of success before reaching their heights. Um, in particular to Joan's story that I found interesting that I never fully realized is that she did have a stepfather who was sexually abusing her starting at the age of 11 until she was sent to St. Agnes's Academy um, in her, in her later teens. So there's, there's elements of tragedy and trauma contained within their stories uh, that, I think I would have to imagine dictate the way they're going to lead their lives going forward and how they're not going to take 
anything lying down. Um, and especially when it comes to Betty Davis, who in her early Hollywood career fought Jack Warner actively for better roles. And before Olivia de Havilland got the uh, seven-year contract system dismantled, Betty Davis challenged Jack Warner openly in British court. Um, for, what? Yes, I didn't know that. Yes, she did. Well, so, What was the challenge? So in 1936, Davis was infuriated with Warner Brothers' refusal to give her better parts, agreed to two roles in Britain, which she knew would violate her contract. In that time, she also fl flees to Canada to avoid being served the legal papers. Warner brings the case of uh, brought the court brought the case to the court in Britain. There is a barrister uh, that was representing Warner's who, in court, said, "We've come to the conclusion that it is this is rather a naughty young lady." And that she wants what that what she wants is more money. If anybody wants to put me in perpetual servitude on the basis of that remuneration, which at the time was thirteen hundred and fifty dollars a week, uh, I shall prepare to consider it. So there was this consensus of selfish brat going across the country because she's not getting what she wants. Davis said to the press, I knew that if I continued to appear in any more mediocre pictures, I would have no career left worth fighting for. Um, now, here's something that just indicates the mentality of the studio system before that contract system was dismantled. The question put to Jack Warner in court was, Whatever part you choose to call upon her to play, if she thinks she can she can play it, whether it's distasteful and cheap, she has to play it. And Jack Warner responded, "Yes, she must play it." So, the contract wow. system is upheld in this case. Davis loses the case in court, but it is indicated that Warner did start to indeed take notice that she was not going to be messed with. Um, what began as a series of her having to actually fight to get better roles, even to the point of begging to be loaned out to other studios, ends up leading her towards a career path at Warner's that makes her the queen of the lot for a good chunk of the 40s. Uh, a lot of this begins with the movie Marked Woman and Jezebel. Jezebel, by the way, is where she won her second Oscar. Her first one was for a movie called Dangerous. Um, and from there, she does Dark Victory and other films that make her a powerhouse on the lot in the 40s. Joan Crawford, um, coming out of the childhood that she had, whether it involved familial abandonment, sexual abuse, breaking her foot severely on a broken milk bottle while trying to learn how to dance, and having to move from state to state because the stepfather was being accused of embezzlement. Uh, she, she tries to go to college and doesn't make it any more than a few months at Stevens College, so she never passes beyond primary school education. She starts beginning to travel with reviews and theatrical troops. When she finally gets signed to a contract at MGM, she is brought forth as the signifier of the flapper era that even exceeded um, uh, that even exceeded others that came before her. Um, she actually was not born Joan Crawford, uh, like many studio actresses of the era. She was uh, given she had a stage name. She was born Lucille Faye Lassure. 
um, and the studio changed it. Um, and they initially thought of Joan Arden, but then they settled upon Crawford. Crawford later said that she detested the name because Crawford sounded like crawfish. So, oh my um, God. yeah. So, you know, you've got to, sometimes you just got to suck it up and go like, well, you know, I, I'll just deal with this <laughs> for now. Um, but, um, yes, her, her persona of the, the flapper made F Scott Fitzgerald himself take notice. He said, Joan Crawford is doubtless the best example of the flapper. The girl you see in smart nightclubs gowned to the apex of sophistication, toying iced glasses with a remote, faintly bitter expression, dancing deliciously, laughing a great deal with wide hurt eyes, young things with a talent for living. You're better than the whole punch put together Gatsby. No, wait a minute. I went a little too far there. Um, (laughs) um, So yeah, yeah, so Joan makes that ranking, and then in nine, she starts off in silent movies. Then in nineteen twenty nine, she appears in two of her first sound movies. First of all, is the Hollywood Review of nineteen twenty nine, starring Jack Benny and a few other stars. Uh, and then she makes the full transition to sound with the movie Untamed. And one of the characterizations that she starts picking up, she moves out of this flapper role and becomes a hardworking working woman character who achieves romance and financial success. So rags to riches story, essentially she becomes very known for that. But up until this point, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford's paths aren't crossing. Really? That is until Joan Crawford is terminated by MGM out of mutual consent. After 18 years at the studio, she's bought out for a hundred grand and then moves over to Warner's for a three-picture deal at 500 grand. The first film there is Hollywood Canteen, starring Jack Benny, Betty Davis, and many other people, including P- Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet. Um, and that's actually the first time they're in a movie together, but they weren't on screen together. Hollywood Canteen was a um, a cameo film <laughs> where it's a ton of cameos, all centered around this one story of a soldier finding a night of love at the Hollywood canteen before he ships off overseas. Um, and it's a cute movie. People out there should watch it. It's quite a lot of fun. Um, but her status at the studio, uh, as being the newcomer really switches gears when she is put in the picture, Mildred Pierce, a film that Betty Davis turned down. I'm sure she regretted that because Joan Crawford won the Oscar for Mildred Pierce. Um, And it's a film that she had to fight to get through. Uh, Michael Curtiz, the director, had to make her prove she was right for the role with the screen test because she didn't he did not believe that she could do it. Um, And then this began a series of hits for Crawford that ranged from psychological drama to pure melodrama. So at this time, as she's making her way through the Warner's lot, Betty is growing infuriated with the products that she is being given. Um, and by 1949, Betty negotiated a new contract that paid her $10,285 a week. Jack Warner agreed to it, but in return, he rejected her right to refusal on script approval. So she, she gets assigned to a movie that she detests called beyond the forest. She loathes this script so much that she says, if you if I finish this picture, will you release me from my contract? Jack Warner agreed. Yeah. She finishes the movie and kicks off and becomes a freelance uh, actor. 
Joan Crawford finds herself in a similar position and her feeling of leaving Warner Brothers was that Jack Warner was starting to basically not cater to as much of an interest in her. So they both embark on these freelance careers. Betty Davis has a quite a resurgence with All About Eve, uh, a classic film that has a discussion in its own right. But then her comeback kind of declines because of other films getting bad reception, like Another Man's Poison and The Virgil Queen. Um, by the time she gets to 1962, she has already returned to Broadway a few times. Her role in The Night of the Iguana is open to mediocre reviews, and she leaves after four months due to chronic illness, quote-unquote. Um, and she stars in a movie called Pocketful of Miracles, which is a remake of a Capra movie called Lady for a Day. And exhibitors were protesting her having star billing because they were sure she was box office poison. And the film was a flop, so maybe they weren't wrong. At the same time, Joan is continuing to work steadily through this decade. She returns to MGM for a movie called Torch Song. She's in movies like Johnny Guitar, Female on the Beach with Jeff Chandler, uh, Autumn Leaves, and The Best of Everything. And then that leads us to whatever happened to Baby Jane. Now, based on all of what I've just told you, it just seems like these two were just waiting to get into a room with each other or like it was destined, like <laughs> something was going to have to give. They'd already crossed their paths with each other in 1945 due to one role that one turned down and the other took to an Oscar. <laughs> like, wow. I, I, you know, it's, they are some of the most powerful actresses of their era. You watch them in a movie in their prime. They are, you cannot look away from the screen. They are, Mildred Pierce is a wonderful film. Uh, I'm a little bit more of a Betty Davis fan myself. Um, and she's in a movie that I'm sure she didn't like making, but I enjoy her in it, which is The Petrified Forest with Leslie Howard and Humphrey Bogart. Um, and she's great in Marked Woman, which was one of those films that gave her something challenging to do. Um, and in a lot of ways is a great example of an early attempt at a female empowerment movie. Um, it's not perfect, but it does a lot that you wouldn't expect. Um, now, Joan Crawford is the one who is approached to do this film with the assistance of one Robert Aldrich, who's the director of this film. Um, Robert Aldrich has quite a many feather in his cap. Vera Cruz, Kiss Me Deadly, The Big Knife. After this film, he does The Flight of the Phoenix and The Dirty Dozen. This guy was no slouch. Yet, when he comes to whatever happened to Baby Jane, he finds himself amid a few flops. Um, the last film that he had done up to this point um, was in Italy for the B biblical spectacular Sodom and Gomorrah for Joseph E. Levine. Uh, and uh, he hated the final product. It ended up costing $6 million. Didn't work out for anybody. So his next venture is to option the novel Whatever Happened to Baby Jane for the Associates, Aldrich and, Associates and Aldrich Company. Um, Joan Crawford looks at the story and says Betty would be good for Joan, or for, for Jane. Um, so Betty Davis, <laughs> Betty Davis begrudgingly agrees to this movie. <laughs> um, Why begrudgingly? I think she saw it as I, she must have seen it as below her or cheap. Here's the thing: we've got to discuss right off the bat. This is a horror movie. Horror was not a respected genre at this point. 
nobody wanted to do a horror movie because you were relegated to the Karloff and Lugosi aspect of everything. Now, uh, here's a here's a question, Abella. Do you care if the movie is a horror movie or a romantic movie? Do you want to make a movie? <laughs> like, are you are you talking about as an actress? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I care. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. let me put it this way then. Do you find the horror genre denigrating at all? Like, do you do you find it valueless? Okay, let me put it this way. Back to you. Mm-hmm. Um, if I look at somebody's IMDb, another actor, mm-hmm. and I see only horror films, I am judging them. Hmm. Okay. That's that's an interesting that's an interesting angle on it. You're not wrong because that still permeates today, even even as we have a horror environment that is growing where braver stories are being told through its lens. Um, especially at this time, people are looking at this as a horror movie where a sister tortures her sister and they're not looking at it for the dramatic value. Now, having seen the film between us both, there's a lot of moments for an actress to shine in this movie, particularly when it comes to the role of Jane. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so she negotiated a deal to get 10% of the gross in addition to her salary. So she was very good at negotiating a deal. And given the reception of this film, it's uh, easy to see that she uh, was very smart to do that because she made a lot of fucking money off of this thing. This movie was a sleeper hit when it came out. Um, Now, something to consider also about this is not it's not just a horror movie. It's in the tradition tradition of Grand Guillaume, which was at the time was used for naturalistic horror shows. However, the the way that it would have per- been perceived then as naturalistic, we consider melodramatic by today's standards. And this film also technically follows under a category that I didn't realize existed. Are you ready to giggle a little bit, Abella? <laughs> I'm always ready for that. Yes. Okay, this is known as a psycho bitty movie. <laughs> What's this? Why? I'm glad you asked. So Psycho Bitty (laughs) is a subgenre that combines elements of the horror, thriller, and women's film genres. It has been Hmm. referred to by several different terms, which also include Grand Dame, Guillaume, Hagsploitation, and Hag Horror. Hag horror. Yeah. Oh my god, I love it. Yeah. Hagsploitation film. Let's make a exploitation film. I love that. Yes. So that the, then this term biddy is a disparaging term for older women, either hag or biddy. You know what? I've heard the word biddy used in an endearing way. I think I wonder if like I maybe some maybe the people that I've heard use it or the person that I've heard use this uh didn't didn't know like the context of it, but is like I've heard that used as like a cute. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of Phillies. <laughs> okay, that's a different different no, word. No, the, 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 I've used this. This term is used in radio shows of the era too. They just go like, "She's just a little old bitty," like that kind of thing. And I, <laughs> I feel like you know when we talk, talking about ageism within this discussion is interesting too because it it presupposes the notion that actresses in particular are out the door and of are and are of no use by the time they reach an age like Betty and Joan had and yet both of them were able to have sec third third act careers because of 
genre films like this. And therein lies the question, is it a decline for them or is it a moment of experimentation that they never got to have before? Because I'd argue half of the films that they're able to do in this horror realm give them much more challenging material technically than even half the drama pictures they got in the era because the code is no longer a factor and they're being given a range of things to do because of how terrifying the subject matter is. Um, And I think within that, Abella, we can kind of jump into the plot and we don't have to go point for point, but I kind of want to talk about by the end of this film, how you perceive both actresses. But it is important to know that baby Jane starts off as a child prodigy actor, actress, a song and dance girl. Um, She is, uh, it's 1917 and she is performing in vaudeville theater. She is singing the song. I wrote a letter to daddy. His, which is a creepy fucking song, by the way. Like I'm literally thinking, like, what? Is, what are the what are the tones here? What's the undertone here? They're trying to like paint, mm-hmm. and then you find out that like her dad is very is like, like it's obviously not a real, you know, it's not. It was just a bizarre. The whole thing was fucking weird. Like I'm like, who is it that? I mean, it was it worked right. It was like an effective, um, song for that child actress storyline because it did move you right to like watch some like poor sad child like sing about that mm-hmm. but then the contrast of that and the, her relationship with her own father was so fucking jarring <laughs> i think it's a very good entry point into jane's expectation of what life is supposed to be this is a kid that has her own line of dolls like these like big sit up creepy dolls that are used for great horror imagery for, throughout the movie. And the, the, the contrast of that is that her sister Blanche sits in the wings lacking any attention. And her mother basically is just like, you know, one day you're going to outshine them all. And when you do, I hope you're as kind to them. Uh, you're kinder to them than they are to you. And mm-hmm. Uh, and we also get that scene outside of the the stage door where she's de- where Jane is demanding ice cream. <laughs> like, yeah, well, that, I think that was like a really important scene because it really showed. I mean, it, it's interesting because like I've seen people, uh, filmmakers in modern film and television, kind of like tell that same like child actor story. And I've worked with like other child actors um, on set before. Um, I worked with one actress who was you know she was supposed to be like my child in this project and she looked identical to me it was fucking bizarre like it was like super odd to see like a mini you and then not have any like actual relationship to them like in real life you know but yeah um like working with her it was really interesting and actually made me pretty sad I don't you know I I I have I don't know how to feel about it because I have, you know, so many friends in the industry who, you know, I have friends that are managers and whatnot, and they work with a lot of kids. And we have this discussion sometimes where, you know, it's like ethically um, questionable, I think, to put a kid through that. Like, and that was kind of like, uh, I've seen that in real time. Like, you know, when I worked with this, with this one girl, um, I felt really bad with, for her at a certain point because it was obvious that like, 
while she has a wonderful personality and she's super fun and like she probably like enjoys aspects of acting, she doesn't necessarily enjoy um, working. And which, yeah. And I would, I was, I'm curious about, uh, you know, because I, I've, I've never really worked with a child actor apart from one time, and like they were there for like literally two hours, and. It was, it, it was, she was a kind, sweet girl and her mother were there. She was super supportive. And, but uh, apart from that, I don't have a lot of experience of it. And my, my, my assumption is, is that there has to be something depending on who the kid is and also how, frankly, maybe the parents push them or don't push them that determines what they perceive fame to be and what they perceive this business to be. And, Jane's an example of one who is so emaciated in it because of her popularity that it paints a picture that isn't realistic to hold up over time. And I got to wonder what that does to a kid who just like who grows up years later and has that mess with their head. Um, And you said you've like you've worked with people who have been child actors before, right? I've worked. Well, yes, like I've worked with uh, people who grew up uh, as actors when they were kids. And then like, you know, they are where they are now. Um, And then I've worked with people like with children who were actors. And then that, that was weird because at least in the situations that I was in, I didn't feel like, um, I mean, it depends person to person. Like I think some actors have a little bit more, I don't know, like the, the natural sort of like ability to kind of focus in and and whatnot um, as kids as well. But I think that sometimes it can be a lot of pressure, just the way that it was depicted in um, whatever happened to baby Jane was so accurate to like how I feel like it is. Cause it's like, and, and you know what, uh, uh, Judd Apatow did a really good job at like kind of telling that story too in the TV show Love yeah. with with the child actors. I mean, she basically had the same freak out, like exact same freak out being like, I make all the money. Mm-hmm. Like why the fuck? Because that's, I think what is the most fucked up about it aside from like the pressures and, and whatnot. It's, you know, like when a, when a child actor is like, super successful it kind of throws off the normal power structure in a family dynamic that i can i think can you know not to mention like who knows how like what the parent you know it can do like that kind of shit like fucks with people's heads you know so like the parents i think can sometimes get weird in terms of like i don't know the way they treat the kid and when they're really successful and if they're getting like um if they're getting praised for their success like it does like a weird thing to like create and you see that with with the way that she told her story um through her character it's like she talks about like when she was a good girl and when she was a bad girl you know and that sort of split and it seems like that had a lot to do aside from i mean it seems like she was predisposed to some behavioral like issues already like potentially like some mental health issues but I, it seems like a lot of her mental health issues were also rooted in the fact that she was being pressured to do something that maybe um, was a little too much for a kid to have that much pressure and like expectation and like the expectations of their parents and making sure they don't disappoint, you know? Um, Yeah. I think that something that something that I, 
look upon this with interest is that we had a lot of we're we're of a generation that grew up loving Macaulay Culkin and um, knowing how that saga turned out by the end of it and how like there is so much money being funneled through their these child performers into the parents pockets and them having that mentality like there's there's a sort of like i don't want to say it's sympathy for joan but you you have an understanding of what she's been brought up to believe by one parent versus probably another because the mother doesn't seem to have much of an interference between what the father's doing and how they are conducting business and i i find it I find that to be a key interest point in regards to do we have sympathy for Jane in this movie? Because the majority of this movie sees Jane as an irredeemable monster <laughs> uh, because of the way she treats Blanche. And, yeah. and yet there is something about Jane as a personality that they're th- both of them are living in tragedy, but for two different reasons. And, uh, but by the time they grow up, Jane's meal ticket uh, or Jane's talent and what brought her to fame has fizzled out completely in favor of Blanche. And it really kicks off with this screening room where they're actually showing footage from prior movies featuring Betty Davis, which are Parachute Jumper and X-Lady. And they're basically just like, this girl has no fucking talent. Why did her sister insist on this fucking contract that gives her a picture for every picture she makes? And they are trying to conspire to get rid of her. And we get this ominous, the gates of the house of a car hitting somebody in the legs. And that's what thrusts us into the present. And right off the bat, this movie makes no apologies. It's a horror movie with that, with that cue into the opening credits. And but it was so campy that it didn't. I like. <laughs> I, I was like, wait, what? Like, I like. It took me a minute to like really comprehend like what was happening. And as much as I see the horror aspect of it, obviously, I I still think to me it was like more of a psychological thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What do you think? It just I, didn't. I, it didn't seem as aggressive as most horror movies but maybe that's because it was back in the day yeah i think that i think it treads the line um it's no different from psycho because you could consider psycho to be a thriller film you could also uh, conceive of it as a slasher movie before slasher movies existed i think this film falls into horror tropes wrapped around psychological terror so it's like a psychological horror movie to an extent uh the imagery that we have in horror in particular really deals with the things that Jane does to Blanche because, you know, to set it up, Blanche is crippled from an accident. It's conceived by the, perceived by the audience based off the information given to us that Jane ran over her sister in a drunken rage, doesn't remember anything and is making her own hell for herself uh, in the way of taking care of her crippled sister. And, the 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 catalyst for all of the real monstrous abuse is when Jane finds out that Blanche is planning to sell the house and put Jane into rehab, essentially, because she's trying to get a doctor there to consult with Jane and basically to have an intervention. And the horror imagery that kicks off is, first of all, she's not above 
feeding her sister dead animals, uh, which I think is a very clear horror piece of horror imagery. Uh, the, True. the dead bird is a good one, but the big one is is the rat. If we the the rat, everybody knows about the rat. It's kicked off by that wonderful line. You know, we have rats in the cellar, <laughs> and then she just walks off. And it, you you mentioned the word campy, Bella. Yeah, <laughs> I love when she she says like, you know, we have rats up in the cellar, and then she walks out, and Aldrich is intercutting between this true tension. Of Blanche not wanting to touch her food. <laughs> like, genuinely, that's relatable. If you've already been set up that your bird might be your next meal. And slowly trying to lift up the tray, and it cuts to Jane waiting for the reaction. <laughs> but see, that's what's interesting, because the way that we would shoot that nowadays is we would have we would have had that line happen after she had taken several bites heartily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it's revealed she's a rat. Yeah, it's yeah. it's that that's true. The campiness of this film in particular extends off of, to this outrageous humor. Like it's just incredibly outrageous. This is a John Waters type of joke that happens here in this moment, feeding somebody a dead rat. Um and the other horror imagery that we end up getting falls into things you'll find in hammer horror films where like like when she's keeping Blanche silent, she has her hands tied up in that uh, that uh, pulley thing that helps her lift herself up into her wheelchair from her bed. Um, and the other one being the death of their maid, Elvira, um, who, you know, I want to I want to bring this up because I find this interesting. Yes, Mady Norman is playing a. Uh, a maid character, but this character is so proactive in this movie in the best possible way. Um, oh, I love it. She's amazing. She, she like is the one that gives you hope mm-hmm. in the whole thing. You're just like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She, she's like, she, she has no compunction about telling Jane to go fuck herself. <laughs> like she's- Yeah. And I think she, I really like her relationship with, um, oh my God. With Blanche. Um, you Thank you. Yes. Because the way that like, the way that their relationship is painted, it's like, it feels very equal. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't feel like, like Blanche listens to her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She, she cares about her opinion and what's more. She's not like, she, she, she's not going to take the compunction of her, of her boss lying down. The only time she really gets fooled is when she's, when Jane tells her, um, I'm giving you the day off. Uh, Blanche told me to give you the day off. Here's your $15 for the week. And she goes off. And when she comes back the next week, dutifully, that's when Jane just unloads on her going like, well, that I might as well tell you, we no longer need your services. You may go now. And that leads to Mady trying to go and investigate. So she lies about not having the key to the house anymore. And she does. She goes up to the house. She finds Blanche just as Janie is returning and she uh, is trying to get the door open. Jane's trying to make a bunch of excuses. Jane reverts to uh, childish innocence more often than not as a defense mechanism. Like, I didn't mean to hurt anybody. I swear I didn't mean to nimid it. And it's that's so creepy. And mm-hmm. I love I love her ability to just uh, switch in and out of like 
Like, I think that was the most interesting part for me, like as an actress, like her ability, aside from like the, the kind of struggle that Blanche's character was going through, like internal struggle, which like, you know, between her own good and bad, Mm -hmm. that's kind of like, it's shown to you at the beginning where like Blanche initially is kind of like, you're sort of like the whole time. I feel like you're interestingly kind of like exploring like Blanche's line between her darkness and whatnot as well a little bit. Um, Yeah. But yeah, with like where um, Jane switches in and out of kind of these, I don't know. She like has these like really dramatic like shifts of like, where she'll switch into like Blanche's character. Like, you know what I mean? Like where she plays Blanche on the phone or whatever. And like, it's so fascinating because you see that like, not only is it like a, you know, a testament to, to the actress herself, but like the character as an actress, you know, cause she was a performer and whatnot. You see that that character, like that Jane is actually extremely talented, mm-hmm. but because of her mental health situation and how fucked up she is, she can't even access or utilize that in a way that like has served her not to mention the fact that like it seems like you know um her i don't know like again like this like kind of need for approval sort of like dancing to like you know for the puppet master kind of mentality that she was raised with made her acting also limited and that's kind of what it sort of showed that like the difference between um blanche and jane as actresses in the film that's sort of like what i got from it as well like that kind of basis in real life is there's actors who kind of have like a little bit more of like a introverted like quiet sort of presence as opposed to actors who have this like really big and loud presence and typically the folks who are more quiet and introverted it's like a there's more power in that and their ability to tell stories with minimal like effort which is what we want as viewers is a lot stronger than those who are like super loud about it you know right well it's the difference between it's that broad and uh, it's broad versus the introverted as you said like it's funny i was thinking of a comparison of two sisters and i don't mean this as denigrating because i think they're both extremely talented actresses uh dakota fanning and l fanning Um, Dakota Fanning, I feel, is a much more broad actor, and that serves her well because that's what she's able to play with, whereas Elle Fanning kind of went her way up by way of more smaller, intimate performances. And I think that that's a key way to look at those things as well. And it it means nothing to Mady though because uh, because uh, her as Elvira is just like no no fuck that she gets in she sees Blanche in the position that she's in and Mady makes the terrible mistake that most horror actors do which is they put down the weapon they they put down the weapon and they and she puts down that hammer and next thing you see Abella is a hammer being raised off screen and she just gets it in the back of the head and ah, it's, it's crushing. <laughs> like it's very crushing. Yeah. It's um, and I will say if there's any, for, for the purposes of this show, if there's any stereotype that's being laid into is that it's unfortunately, it's just one of the many where the black character dies in a horror movie. And um, right. I, I don't think it's as pertained to this particular story in a way that carries the same baggage as others. I do think that it's, uh, it, it, in fact, it it follows the natural progression of this story to a large degree because 
we have to isolate Blanche. We have to give her no hope for this story to unfold the way it's going to unfold. Um, yeah, because she, because Mady represents the hope, I think. Yes. Yeah, she does. If Mady was able to save Blanche, there'd be no point in what we get, which is one of these amazing endings. But you brought this disillusionment up to where she's singing for the puppet master, that mentality that she was raised with. There's a lot of moments where Betty Davis is left alone. There's these wonderful moments where she's left alone, which I think are just amazing moments. Because in addition to her mental illness and her current situation, she's also an alcoholic. She's a raving alcoholic um, to the point where she's calling in fake liquor orders one of her most un, uh, un, unsung talents is being able to imitate her sister <laughs> to place yeah, a liquor pretty, order. <laughs> pretty incredible, actually. Like, that was like a moment where I was like, damn, mm-hmm. like, yeah. Yeah, you think Joan Crawford can do Betty Davis is my question. Because then it's like M- Mel Blanc being able to do Daffy Duck as Bugs Bunny and Bugs Bunny as Daffy Duck. Um, <laughs> and right. uh, the, but the, the big moments that I see are when she's left alone in the living room, specifically with the piano or with her notices from vaudeville, because she is put down this road of longing, regret, um, disillusionment. Oh, uh, it's so sad. It's actually so sad. It, like, well, as I was watching that, I was like thinking, God, I wonder how many, because it's weird too, like the choice that they made, I love that they did this, but the choice that they made to like keep her looking like pretty similar to how she did when she was like a, a kid or how they how they showed her as like a child mm-hmm. um, to where you you see like her, even her hair is kind of like similar, like styled some in a similar way. And you see like the contrast between her and the doll. And it's such a striking like imagery to like see somebody with, Basically, the only change is like she's like older and like she's got the wrinkles and whatever. And so it's just a bizarre like visual to consider, you know, I mean, this happens to any person who ages, like considering their younger self and, you know, what they experience as a kid and how that like how that informs who they are today. And like whether it was like they they missed something about their childhood or they dreaded or were sad about something about their childhood or they lost something in their childhood, any of those, which she, I think might've been had a combination of things, but in her more conscious mind, it was very obvious. And I I was thinking about this too. Like, what would it be like to peak in childhood? Right. Which is, which (laughs) frankly is a question that you can ask most child actors that uh, we've seen grow into adulthood. Um, You know, like I, I think that, the stage has been set so much that it's still the same uh, success failure ratio that it was when it, when the, this industry began, because you do have success stories like Mara Wilson, who became a celebrated author, but then you also have examples of people like Corey Feldman who falls into harder times um, or even Jake Lloyd. And there, there is, I have to imagine that, for somebody like Jane in particular, what's interesting is is that she's uh, not even a victim of uh, a machine that just cranks out talent. She's also a victim to an extent of the transition from vaudeville to motion pictures. Um, mm. And I think that that bears some consideration too because 
vaudeville could sustain you could sustain an act in vaudeville because you're going from town to town when you have a motion picture industry that's cranking out a picture a week conceivably at each given studio you're getting new content each time the audience is eating up new material on a weekly basis they're not going to go for the same routine on a constant flow like you can't do the same repeat performances the same way. It doesn't work. So vaudeville falls to the wayside. And in fact, a lot of vaudevillians effectively dug their own graves in the late 1920s doing Vitaphone shorts where they would do their act in front of a camera for early sound films that, you know, like the ones who did permeate beyond vaudeville, the two that I have that come to mind are Burns and Allen who obviously went on to radio and baby Rose Marie, who ended up finding a career outside of her child act in vaudeville and ended up becoming one of the most celebrated TV actresses of all time with her role on the Dick Van Dyke show. So, so that's like, that's something that I consider with baby Jane. It's almost just like what would have happened if Rose Marie had fallen into this. And I think that this type of regret and consideration of your younger self and longing for the past tends to be used more often than not for either this genre or for dramatic purposes. Uh, and when it's used for horror, it it brings an interesting dramatic heft that not other horror films can necessarily have because it does require an actress like Betty Davis to pull that off because you have to You can't just hate Jane throughout this entire movie because this film does a lot to bring about a middle ground that seems inconceivable because Blanche is always defending Jane to everybody. (laughs) Yeah. And especially to Elvira. And And you at first would think, oh, well, this is because... She feels bad that her sister still has to take care of her, even though it was her sister's fault. When you find out the twist at the end, you realize it's a it's a string of regrets that have emerged from a decision that Blanche made. And because of it, Jane is effectively blacklisted beyond even what she was about to endure with a studio dumping her from a contract. And, you know, they have... It, it puts them both at odds, not just as sisters, but as professionals, because, you know, Blanche would mention a movie of hers that was on TV and people writing letters saying that she loved they loved her in that movie. Letters, by the way, that Jane has effectively withheld from uh, Blanche um, to go through right. the mail. Um, and Jane will just mention like, I had a picture that year. You remember? No, nobody did because nobody ever saw it. And that that whole jealousy and that rage like builds and builds and builds to where you you want you want to wonder why is blanche being so nice to her sister up to a point because there's a certain point where blanche just effectively says no i got to get away from this psycho <laughs> and right um but but she's going to be put in an even worse position because jane has put out an ad for somebody to help her with her musical arrangements. And that's where we get uh, the character of Flag. Um, now, 
have you ever heard of Victor Buono, uh, Abella? Just even the name? No. Okay. You may not know this, and I don't know how many people do know him outside of whatever happened to Baby Jane, but if you do, it's because he was none other than King Tut in the Batman 1966 series. Oh, what? <laughs> That's the, so random? One of the, most, okay, cool. one of the weirdest ill-conceived villains uh, Batman ever had to face. He's not necessarily the cream of... Let's put it this way. Christopher Nolan's not making a King Tut villained Batman movie anytime soon. Um, right, right, um, right. Okay. Yeah, he's uh, he's described as uh, charismatic and monomaniacal. <laughs> monomaniacal? Mono- what is that like? He's only maniacal in a single way. Is that what that means? <laughs> I'm gonna. I didn't even bother to look up that that term. Monomaniacal. Monomaniacal. Hold on. Like monotone, but like, like monotone. Like, like basically, what comes to mind is that character. The you were right. You were right. Or- you were right. Obsessed <laughs> with a single subject or idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's. Fucking funny! That's, oh my god, it's crazy. Monomaniacal. I'm I'm introducing that into my uh my my verbiage, my vocabulary. Here's 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 a lesson for everybody. That we're gonna talk about Batman for a second. After a blo- after a blow to the head during a student riot, the professor developed amnesia and therefore believed he was the reincarnation of King Tutankhamun. He sought to take what? over. He seeks to take over Gotham City and defeat defeat Batman and Robin. He is defeated by another blow to the head, returning him to his normal state. That's right. That does happen when he appears on the television show. Um, Amongst his evil plots is releasing a handful of ancient scarab beetles in the second season. Oh, I remember the scarab. I remember this. Like, this was such a lot. I can't remember. But you know what? That's so funny because uh, I love that as like a, a... like a anticlimactic ending. Mm-hmm. Like I love this idea. I actually want to do like a, a comedic short that's basically this where it's like the whole movie, there's this like fucking character, and then all of a sudden something happens, and then they're just like totally chill. Yeah. And like there's no more conflict whatsoever. And everybody's <laughs> like, no, actually, we're good now. Yeah. It, it, well, <laughs> I, let me let me th- you know what? The plan got even better, Bella. Okay. He, he all right, would, all right. With the Beatles in his possession. He was able to create a terrible ancient potion called Abu Rabu Simbu 2, um, okay. which, by the way, God, <laughs> no, um, which can be used to subdue the human will. He planned on concocting 95 gallons of the drug, more than enough to put all of Gotham under his power. <laughs> Why didn't he just give them all weed? That's enough to subdue the human will. Now, like, now, now, Abella, you must understand that weed is a devil drug and totally illegal oh. by Gotham standards. That's right, Abella. Uh, I see, I see, I see, I that's, see. Right. That, that's right. Don't don't toy with me, Missy. Now back to the back cave. Wow. That is too funny. Wow. Okay, okay. So I'm really happy that we're discussing Batman yeah. like, right now. <laughs> Yes, but back to Victor Buono. He did get right. an Oscar nomination for whatever happened to Baby Jane. 
Um, he, Did he? Good yeah, for him. I know. I agree. And he's also appears in Hush Hush Sweet Sar- Charlotte, which is kind of like an offshoot of this film based off of its success. But he was also Count Manzeppi in Wild Wild West. Uh, he was in The Untouchables. A guy had a guy had a st- solid, steady career. Uh, in this film, he plays. Uh, Flag, who is a gentleman living with his mother. He's a British gentleman living with his mother. Um, and he answers the ad, basically building himself up to be bigger than he is. Kind of like Jane, actually, to be honest. Yeah, they're like, very some Exactly. Like, that's like, that's the, uh, uh, what do you call it? The um, complementary mm-hmm. archetype to Jane's mental health issues. <laughs> yeah. And we see Jane getting ready for her uh visitor with she really dolls herself up. She obviously downs a couple shots of booze and like a lot of shots. Like she's like you're early. Oh yeah. Yeah. This is this well this is actually you know what this is even light for her, I'd imagine. You know, this is this imagine, is ju- yeah. this is just to get rid of the DTs right there. And right. yeah. And she um uh she greets him into the home. He she is she is trying to relay to people how big she was because she does this to the person she lays the ad to as well by going like, you must know who I am. I'm baby Jane Hudson. And <laughs> the look of and the answer, his response when she leaves is hilarious. Cause it like literally hasn't skipped a beat. Like it, it felt like it could have been the same exact response that we would like write today in mm-hmm. dialogue. Like who the hell is baby Jane? Whatever the fuck. Like she, he was like, literally who the hell is that? And it was hilarious. Like the timing, everything was excellent. Yeah. And she like flat out, like she, she's, she's, she's taking steps to ensure her sister won't say a goddamn word, even though Blanche has been throwing notes to the neighbors next door to hopefully get some form of like, God, please help. (laughs) And, oh, that actually that let's talk about that for a moment when she discovers the letter. Oh yeah. When she Uh discovers the letter and then they have the conversation where she's trying to be nice to Jane and Jane references the letter. And she's just like, I know what the fuck you did. (laughs) Like Jesus. Like the right. the amount of like sinister that Jane exudes from it is astounding. And on top of that, she and Jane herself is taking all precautions to make sure that Blanche doesn't say anything primarily because also she knows that if that buzzer goes off that Blanche uses to get her food, <laughs> um, that she's going to have to address who her sister is and then her the attention will be taken away from Jane. And actually, there is a there is some cursing in this film before uh, in the time before language was really allowed. When that buzzer goes off, you hear it slightly covering up the word bitch because she goes, you miserable bitch. (laughs) 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 Um, That's hilarious. Yeah, but the bell does ring at some point during their discussion, but it's kind of shrugged off to the side and. Flag is flag works to get the money out of her. And Jane's just like, well, I promise to give you um, a whole month's in advance come Wednesday. And so she uh, she proceeds to start learning how to forge her sister's signature to get checks cash from the bank. Like basically right, yeah. she's just throwing Blanche off to the fucking side going like you. You don't matter. You're, you're literally a piggy bank to me now. And the. As the tension all boils to a certain point with 
Jane's obsession and psychotic breakdown combined with Blanche's need for help, it does all go back to Elvira getting killed because once Elvira gets killed, Jane begins her her very big spiral down. Like, she has to get rid of Elvira's body, number one. And she has to assure herself that things will be okay, that she won't get into trouble like she did when she hurt her sister. And I find that incredibly weird and brilliant of a stroke in the story because you start to see that Jane isn't solely a monster. Like, she she's aware of her actions. However, it's all based out of a desire to not get caught. And I yeah. I don't know how to fully read where our sympathy lies with Jane up to a certain point. Because, like, by the end, we've seen her so broken down that this is clearly a woman who needs help. Well, yeah. And, I mean, I think that's something that is framed from the beginning in a way that I think was a little bit before its time, considering, like, you know, the stigma of mental health. But I thought that in the story, it was interesting how... You know, again, like watching this, I'm watching it through the lens of somebody who's grown up with people with mental health issues in my family Mm -hmm. and understanding and being able to relate to um, the the mental process that kind of happens with that. Because on one hand, some of it is like um, like a like a coping mechanism where, you know, when somebody in your family, especially at a young age, um, has a mental health issue you learn to value their good days um, and Mm -hmm. focus on the good days and sort of dismiss the bad days and the, the fucked up shit that they do because that's like what you have to do in order to have a relationship with them. Otherwise you wouldn't be able to have a relationship with them, but most healthy relationships don't operate that way. Like unless it's your family or somebody that like is really important to have in your life. If somebody was fucked up to you the way that, you know, like you deal with with somebody with your family, you would be like, bye, get the fuck out. Right. You wouldn't maintain a relationship with that person. So it's interesting people who have had, um, I'm dealing with this now as, you know, somebody who's like, like learning how to like cope with my own codependent sort of traits that have come up out of, out of growing up with parents who had mental health issues and trauma and stuff that were like, was like pretty aggressive. If it's like in my relationships and, and when I date, I have to have a different standard for the the men that I date than I did for my parents. Because if I apply, which is hard to do, you have to learn that because if I apply the same, the same like uh, uh, rules, I guess, or, mm-hmm. or whatever to my relationships that I did in my household, I end up with really fucked up people in my life who in the same way, just like with Jane, they can't help that that's, you know, if you're, if most fucked up people don't want to be fucked up, like they're, and when I say fucked up, I'm just generalizing like people who are doing things that are hurtful to others. Right. So they don't, most people are just doing their personal best. And sometimes that involves being shitty to other people just because they don't have the tools or the skills or whatever's going on. Like they're dealing with something internally. They're in a lot of pain. They don't know how to you know, they, they don't know how to relate to other people in this, in, in like a, what we consider to be normal way. Right. Um, and so it's, 
there's so much like of a lack there that they're experiencing, whether it's trauma or, or whatever it is that's fueling it, pain, um, that they literally cannot, they can't do better than that. That's, that's, that's their best. So people, when you grow up with people like that, you understand that and you accept that and you accept them kind of unconditionally, but it's interesting because it does feel like, so it's actually interesting. I didn't, I didn't understand this until this moment, but watching that movie kind of was, uh, like it triggered like a lot of my own things around codependency because codependency is basically formed from being raised in a family with, um, somebody who has either an addiction issue or a mental health issue, um, that is so demanding that it disrupts the whole, like, like healthy dynamic of the family. Mm -hmm. Um, if that person is the parent, it can, you know, it manifests in like a weird way because there's a power dynamic with the parent and the child where the, the child needs things from the parent, the parent is responsible to meet the child's needs. And if, if their needs are not able to be met and they learn that like, Oh, mom and dad has a certain limitation to being able to give me what I need. They start to think like, Oh, if I do X, Y, and Z, then they'll give me my needs. It's like a false sense of like control that you, you develop. Like you start to think like, Oh, if I perform well, then mom and dad will love me. And so you learn to perform for love. And then that becomes a thing that you have. And so it's interesting because both of those characters had like elements of that, like predominantly, I think because of their father um, in that situation. Right. But it's interesting because their codependency of like, like uh, Blanche's character where she's like wanting to take care of, like she is the codependent in that scenario where as Jane is like the narcissist in that scenario. And what happens, whether, whether she's like full on narcissist, like, uh, you know, she's definitely on the spectrum of mm-hmm. the personality disorder. Oh yeah. But um, what's interesting is that there's a possibility that in her case, cause you know how she was as a young person and, and Jane speaks or Jane um, Blanche speaks about this when she's talking to, uh, to Mady about like the, the, um, the, the fact that she was different when she was younger, you know, as an excuse, she makes excuses for her. She's like, well, you don't know her. Like I, it's basically like a fucking, like a, a, a person within an abusive relationship. Like, oh, you don't know. You don't know her. Like I do. She was different, you know, X, Y, and Z. Right. Right. Um, and there is an element. I was going to say, there is also an element of Jane having a de- uh, codependency within Blanche's, um, within the Blanche situation and the 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 guilt she's pushed into from the accident. And when we say sure, push, yeah. and, and I think it's appropriate to say pushed, given what the twist is going to be, which we're getting to that, folks, don't worry. But <laughs> I think that what I find interesting within all of that is that you got two very powerful actresses of golden age Hollywood to play into codependency and mental illness in a way that, yes, this is a horror movie, but a horror movie can also depict mental illness or other elements of the human condition in a realistic way if its show chooses to. Considering the year that this movie was made, this movie is very, very grounded in its time of its ability to address mental health. Because... Blanche doesn't disregard it as just she's crazy. She's actively taking the steps to try to get her sister help. Now, albeit it's primarily through her alcoholism. Um, But even to a certain point, 
she is like trying to plead to some part of her sister that knows that she thinks is still there. And I find that uh, uh, not ahead of its time, but very oddly responsible <laughs> uh, for this movie, considering what it could have been. Like, it could have been something way more over the top. Yeah, I mean, I literally was watching Jerry Seinfeld, um, the Seinfeld show uh, the other day, and they were, there's an episode, there's a couple episodes where they talk about mental health, but one specifically where um, Joe Davola character, do you watch Seinfeld? Yes, yes, I know what you're talking about. You know the Joe Davola character, and it's like, oh, he's on his pills, he's gonna lose it because he can't have his pills. Like, it's like such a fucking weird, like, yeah. depiction of mental health. Yeah, it's a very, it, it's, a, it's a very reactionary to the pill craze of the 90s episode of Seinfeld, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, I didn't know there was a pill craze in the 90s. But well, that actually the, makes the, sense. the medication nation, the overmedication of children. And there's True. The, there is there is that aspect of the spectrum. But you're right. Like something like Seinfeld was kind of turning that into a broader sense of humor. This film, this film is re- oddly responsible with itself, but it's also not unaware of what it's got to do as a horror movie. And I think that that's a very difficult balance. I don't think you're able to pull that off that often. And Robert Aldrich it's clearly a director based off of his prior experience. It's very clear that he's focused on character first and uh, window dressing second because you have things like Kiss Me Deadly and The Big Knife, which center around noirish characters. You've got to understand character before you understand uh, the setting that they're placed in. And it plays into what Mick Garris always says about horror, which is uh, a good horror movie is also a good drama movie. And oh, yeah. yeah, and when you combine the two, that's when you get a great horror movie. And with Baby Jane, I think you get the best of both worlds in that scenario. And when it leads up into it's funny because we were talking about Jane's position and all this, and we were talking about like her isolated moments. There's a quote that really kicks off the late the the end of this movie, um, which is the uh she's sitting alone drinking looking at her old notices after she's killed elvira and she says you could have been better than all of them but they didn't want that they just didn't love you enough you know they just didn't love you enough and that and that like is effectively the description of jane's perspective on life it's not it's not an explanation of her character it's an explanation of her perspective and I find it incredibly interesting to how the ending plays out, but also specifically just how do we necessarily sympathize with her? Because it would have been easy for Aldrich to just paint her as an absolute monster. You could have easily adapted the book that way. But this film is considered with a couple of things. It's considered with a grand guild tale a very horror-driven tale, but it's also very much commenting on the death of Hollywood to an extent. Ooh, wow. And How so? Because you do have this longing for the past. Aldrich, along with the author of this book, along with the screenwriter, are not unaware of where Hollywood is going by 1962. The way that it used to operate doesn't happen anymore other studios are folding not everybody is able to make a big box office hit because of television the star system is effectively dismantled 
partially because of the way the contract system ended. You do suddenly have studios looking to make money outside of just actors. Then you have them laying into genre movies. Um, horror pictures become big in the 50s at drive-ins. You don't need a star for that. You just need the horror budget for a costume and make a monster movie. And Okay, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. To speak to that, yeah. what is your take on, you know, and we? this is probably a longer conversation, but I'm going to ask you just like the the, sh- the bullet points. But sure, I yeah. mean, essentially the, the same thing is happening right now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With, with social media, with streaming, with, you know, uh, just alternative forms of entertainment, including podcasting, like what we're doing now. Yep. Um, I'm killing Hollywood. So, I know that. <laughs> right. So like what in an ironic way, because you're just like talking about like back when Hollywood actually still existing to think about it that way, because, you know, we kicked off this convo. You were asking me like what I've been up to and, and whatnot. And I think, you know, I told you like I'd taken a, a step back from auditioning for for the rest of the year. And um part of my decision of that. And I actually left Hollywood too. I I'm still in LA. I'm in, I'm in Laguna beach though. I'm like South of LA. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I, I'm in a month to month, so I'm not like committed to it, but the reason I felt this need to kind of leave, cause I was like in the dead epicenter of Hollywood. Like I was on off of Hollywood Boulevard, like my apartment was right. So it felt like to me, like I am hearing what you're saying right now about the death of Hollywood. And I feel like we're experiencing another death of Hollywood. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. You know, for me, like I responded to it by being like, because this is what's happening. Like so much of the industry feels like kind of fractured and just bizarre right now. And like questionably like um, uh, rooted. Like, I, I don't know if like how strong of a foundation it has right now. Like it feels pretty shaky mm-hmm. um, in terms of, of, making a career out of being an actor. I mean, it's been, it's so competitive, but on top of that, like right now it just straight up feels shaky because of the way that the competition for people's attention has been going in terms of, you know, people not wanting to sit down and and watch a whole movie or even a TV show sometimes. And like there being agendas in Hollywood and people being polarized and like not wanting to, you know what I mean? Like that whole thing. So all that to say, like, I'm, I'm curious, you know, for me, that was part of the reason why I took a step back temporarily to kind of consider like what artistically is more important to me, because while I love, you know, filmmaking and, and, and acting like artistically, what supersedes that is being able to make a statement. So however I need to do that, that that takes precedent. But, you know, in terms of Hollywood and, and film and television, like what is your take on like where we're at, where we're going with it and kind of what's, you know, the death of Hollywood concept that you just mentioned. Well, I I do feel in the bullet points version of this, I do feel that Hollywood is undergoing another evolution as it has since it started, um, whether that's going from silent to sound, uh, from black and white to color, from 4.3 to CinemaScope, um, from from straight only theatrical to the home video market, then to the streaming market. We're undergoing another evolution on what defines what cinema is. And you experience this, I feel, with the old guard. And in this case, the old guard is the guard that came that came off of the backs of the golden age of Hollywood. The people that are most commenting on the death of cinema in in many respects, and I, I personally feel to a detriment to themselves and nothing else, is that it's mainly just because of the way they phrase things. Um, I, I get what they're saying, but I just wish that they'd be more tactful. I don't know. But to me, 
what you have is an old guard acting not too dissimilar from the way baby Jane Hudson acts. Uh. There is a desperation to cling on to yesterday. And I do feel that it's there's nostalgia comes with a big responsibility of balance. And when you cling too much to what it used to be, you don't allow it to grow into what it could be. And so we're at a tug of war moment in that regard. Now, in regards to the death of Hollywood, I, I agree that I feel like Hollywood as a concept is on its knees. Filmmaking is not. It's the concept of Hollywood that we're talking about. And I do feel that it is on its last ropes in what Baby Jane does as a movie that I think extends to today in terms of commenting on that is right now we're seeing a lot of last hurrahs from a lot of the people who effectively saved Hollywood from fully going under because when the old studio heads left their businesses, nobody knew how to run a movie studio. You had corporations buying up the movie studios en masse, but they're like, we don't know how to make a fucking movie. And that's when they pull kids from film school to teach them how. And they have kids like Brian De Palma, Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg. These guys then shape the industry into what it is now. And as a consequence, many of them, without really intending to, created the monsters known as franchises and IP. And because of that, we're seeing a flourish of that material. And now we're seeing that we don't even need a movie theater for it. We can watch it on Disney+, Plus, Netflix, Hulu. So the concept of getting a movie made at a movie studio or even on location and getting it into a movie theater, giving it a window and then putting it on DVD is completely gone now. And the pandemic effectively um, hurried that demise. Um, now, do I think it's like hopeless no but i do think that it is something to consider is that you're right our perception of what hollywood is is dying because to me the the art of filmmaking doesn't go away we'll always find a way to get our movie out even if we have to put it on youtube i think the industry as it once stood is crumbling and yeah, that's interesting, though, because like, you know, as an actor who has like a represented actor, right, I rely on my on my reps mostly for opportunities. And that depends on this whole kind of like system. I mean, it's not the same studio system that was back then, but it's still a studio system. You 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 know, you you go to your manager, your agents to. Uh, take you know to like connect you to the casting director you like hustle 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 eventually they start bringing you in that you know it's like all of those steps that you have to go through the gatekeepers of everything yeah. and now there's almost like i i my prediction uh just based on like everything that's kind of going on in the world i think what's also happened in the music industry um is that people are because this happened in the music industry as well where people are eventually so sick of the way that they were getting exploited and the music industry just like fucking people that like, I think in a similar situation, you know, the film industry doesn't fuck people in the same aggressive way that the music industry did. Like you had like artists, like um, I remember TLC went on to like TRL back in like the nineties and was like, yeah, we haven't seen like, we haven't seen like any money from our last like hit album. (laughs) 
mm-hmm. which is like insane. They're on TRL and they're like, yeah, we actually haven't, like, we don't know what's happening. You know, like stuff like that. That's insane that you think like, oh, they're on every, of course they're making all the money or whatever. And it's like, they were just getting fucked because of the label and we do it in a more strange, like insidious way because it's like more, like, for example, as an actor, you learn pretty early on because the whole system is so competitive. There's a lot of really odd power dynamics and power structures that are sort of exploited for actors. Like the whole system of LA is based on people wanting to move there with a hope and a dream that they're going to become whatever. Right. And they go there and they have to support themselves. So there's now staff that works at all the restaurants, right? Mm-hmm. Without that, I mean, this is a big reason why like the staffs in, in why restaurants are having a hard time staffing right now is because so many people that were those people when the pandemic hit and they didn't really have an opportunity, you know, the film industry like sort of shut down for a while. Like there wasn't as many opportunities. Like people didn't couldn't make money. They didn't have another way to support themselves. Restaurants shut down. Those folks left. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? People had to cut their losses. And now it's like the whole city of LA is kind of like in a way, like in this weird, like uh kind of restructuring process because of, you know, and it's based on some of what's happening right now. And the way that um that I think that I personally predict it uh kind of going is I feel like there's going to come a point and you already kind of started to see this with like everything going on with crew, you know, crew striking and all of that. And like everything that happened, you know, to kind of like the, that happening, the, the whole thing with Alec Baldwin and all of that, that happened in New Mexico on the tail end of, you know, essentially the crew strike. It's like, it's like a, it really kind of, and people just generally speaking, being like, even with this whole four, four day work week thing, like outside of the film industry, people kind of being fed up and like, over being exploited, there's going to come a point, I think there's going to be a tipping point where people are like, fuck this whole, because a lot of the reason why Hollywood works is because of the star system, is because of these perceived sort of um, like perceived like star quality and like this like fucking, what do you call that? Like, like a inflation of what these people are right the, the, like the, they're, they're, they're 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 leveled up to deities exactly it's idolization of of people based on like talent or whatever when even like half the time like that's not even the case like some of these these people who are stars currently aren't even the most talented folks but they're you know they're put on that pedestal and they're they're marketed that way and you know they're they're sold that way and they make a lot of money because they they're, they do they're able to fit that part well yeah um I think that as a result of all of that, like that is kind of starting to crumble and people are seeing beneath it. And that's something that I think has been flirted with for a very long time in different ways in our society. Right now it's happening with Hollywood in a really big way. And I feel like, I feel like there's going to be a push in the direction of independent filmmaking. And I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work or what's going to happen. But I almost like, I feel like it's like this line we keep like coming up on where people are just like starting to get so fed up with the system and the exploitation of like how, how it works. Right. And, and not wanting to be a part of this cog anymore mm-hmm. that I'd be curious. Like I, I, and I hope, I hope to see like a renaissance of independent filmmaking, you know, which I think now is made more possible than, than ever before because of, you know, streaming and not having to have a movie theater, you know? Right. And I think that something that ties it back into 
um, whatever happened to baby Jane in particular is you are watching, you are, you are watching people currently right now in a weird middle position where they are trying to adapt to a new way of thinking while also maintaining elements that were proven effective years before. I don't know if you find this the same way that I do, but I find that whatever happened to baby Jane kind of like psycho is a weird mixture of the old school and the new school. It's, it's really very much built as a bridge. And in particular that, that pertains to what Hollywood was having to become in the 1960s because of the in the onslaught of television, the decline of movie theater attendance, the eradication of the production code, uh, the fact that stars were no longer necessarily tied to a studio, the fact that the studios, the, the studio heads were effectively selling off their businesses that they built with their families, with their own hands. And Right. The, the the thing that I see now that I think is very interesting is, is that you were right. There is a reckoning coming for the way the structure has always existed, because, I mean, I'll be frank in based on what my assessment is. This is a business that can no longer as its own studio afford to make the movies it makes. They have to have. Yeah, executive, but see, this is what, they, they have to have executive what, producers from different financial sources collaborating together. They can't self-finance yeah. anymore. <laughs> Except but for this Disney. This is what's so crazy to me. As as people who, you know, we went to film school, we like we know what it costs to make something, right? Yeah. These motherfuckers are grossly inefficient with their budgets. Like mm-hmm. I'm just like, what? Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, I get it. And in some ways, like I'm like, in some ways it's good because some of that quote unquote inefficiency would be like towards labor. And I think that's like a good place for it to be like that. Like, yes, pay the people that are fucking like put, putting their heart and soul on uh, into these projects and like working these like long ass days and like all of that stuff. But the inefficiencies that you typically see are like, even in the writing, it's like people write, like, it's just like, what it's, it's not necessary. It's like, why don't we instead, and maybe this will be another shift that we see hopefully is people telling better stories instead of, just like spending a fuck ton of money just to like, you know, for an effect mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. It's like just tell a fucking better story where you don't need to have all the frills. It, it's, it, you know, it's funny enough know. though. This, That's this, no, no, you're, I, th- I agree with you because, and, and we can, we can pop back into baby Jane for this reason, because this movie was the, the studio explicitly said, we will distribute, but we want you like, and we'll put up money, but we're going to keep you to a tight, tight budget because we don't believe in this movie. So this movie yeah. was made under independent auspices, the same as Psycho, and it proved to be a sleeper hit that made an efficient amount of money in a world where the studios were relying on big budget fare save them from the onslaught of television that's what the 50s is strewn with and that's what the 60s is strewn with up until the new wave movement so i think you're right like there has to be a concerted effort towards better storytelling something like whatever happened to baby jane because if you're just going to rely on a biblical epic like sodom and gomorrah that may or may not make money if you're robert aldrich you have to take a risk like this and hope to God that other people see that risk and realize there's a marketability in that risk and therefore giving appropriate budgets to stories with an identity that extends beyond franchise IP. 
and um or as or as you wonderfully put it just making it a movie that's concerted on spending all its money on making one special effect and right. i think that 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 that's the plight of everybody involved in baby jane on and off screen it's saving it's it, in a sense it's trying to keep an industry alive with interesting stories and mm. i want to i want to wrap us up on the plot of baby jane and get to the to the legacy of it because she starts her spiral and it leads to flag discovering <laughs> blanche while he's drunk by the way <laughs> super yeah. blotted out <laughs> And he uh, he stumbles along trying to find the police. Jane gets Blanche to the beach. She has completely lost it. She has reverted back to her childhood state. Basically, she's reverted back to her nostalgia. And we get this exchange, Abella, that is just fucking unnerving. <laughs> mm -hmm. This the the ending of this movie is absolutely crazy find someone a doctor I can't if I die you'll be alone but they be mean to me like they were before they'll be kind I don't want to hear Jane I'm I'm dying. There's no time. You must listen. I made you waste your whole life thinking you'd crippled me. Please stop. You didn't do it, Jane. I did it myself. Don't you understand? I crippled myself. You weren't driving that night. driving. You were too drunk. I wouldn't let you drive. I made you go open the gates. I watched you get out of the car. You'd been so cruel to me at the party. Imitating me. Making people laugh at me. I watched you get out of the car. I wanted to run you down, crush you. But you saw the car coming. I hit the gates. I snapped my spine. What do you mean? All this time we could have been friends. And this li literally puts Jane in a spot. She she doesn't know how to process it. She's she, she's completely gone. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, could you imagine like, holy shit, like that, I mean, that, it's just, it's such an interesting thing. And I, again, that again speaks to, to the dynamic. Like, I, I don't know, this is, you know, you see, you see what you see in, in art, you see yourself in art. Right. But like, that's something that like, I, again, I I'm working on personally is like my, my codependent issues, like my, my traits and that, and stuff that I, mm-hmm. that come up for me in relationships and the, the complimentary, um, player to the codependent is the addict and the narcissist. Like that's who you, the codependent needs somebody to like help and take care of and whatever. And the addict and the narcissist needs to feel like they're important and they're loved and they need that attention in order to feel, you know, but they're both getting something fucked up out of it. Um, and what's interesting is like with, with Jane, I don't think that she actually was a full-on narcissist. I think she had a narcissistic wound, which essentially like has a similar effect, but she like a full-on narcissist isn't going to have um, the same, uh, the same like empathy as, you know, or ability. She obviously has some level of, you know, something going on where she was able to still have um, empathy and, and whatnot, just not consistently. And there were a lot of points where she didn't, but it's just interesting. It's interesting because both sides of it. And I think we often vilify the narcissist and the, and the, um, the, the addict. And we look kindly upon the codependent, right? Because Mm -hmm. the codependent is the one who's helping and that looks so noble. But the reality is that the codependent is equally complicit in that dynamic to some degree because they are also getting something out of it. You know? Yeah. I think that there's like, it's, it's a, it's a very, it's a very tricky thing to unfold and unpack because you're, talking about two people's mental states at that point and you have to attempt to understand both in a way that benefits the the mental health and safety of both and when it comes to Jane and Blanche they were set up to fail i mean it's it's easy to say it's the parents fault but both of those parents as written in the script are actively designed to push them down this cliff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and oh yeah. Cause the mother is, the mother is enabling this shitty behavior and the father is acquiescing to it because it gets him money. And so it's, it's, it's in a sense, it's funny that the two people at the center of this movie in the acting categories are the same, are, are, are accused of and, in many cases, based on the evidence, guilty of parental abuse, not too dissimilar from the behavior of the parents that are characters in this movie. <laughs> I know it's super fucking weird, but it's actually it actually makes a lot of sense. in like the life imitates art, like con- like idea, because ultimately the reason in part that they are able to understand and play those roles so effectively is because of a level of like understanding, you know, an intimate understanding of you know and also it like it did reflect their actual lives like both of them were actresses like i would argue that they probably related to those characters quite a bit and probably had parents because that's the thing right we pass down you either you either go the other way or you reflect what your parenting was Mm -hmm. yeah you know and imitate it yeah and the only the only way that we we, the only way we would know actively would be to ask them directly but i will say that it's very clear that it's it's kismet at the very least that these 
these people were made up for the were made for the roles because Betty Davis had the ing- ingenuity to design her own makeup for Jane and just knowing intuitively what there was going to be involved in that combined with her performance you know that mm. that's those are elements in there that just like it's just it was just smart casting that definitely based on the fact that they didn't come from the method acting school it'd be hard to actively say that they draw directly from their experience but their experience actively dictated the way they cavorted their careers because mm-hmm. they said to themselves i'm not going to be thrown around and kicked around and to the point where that unfortunately extended into the way they raised their children but more particularly yeah. you're right like there is this there is this layering that provides a destiny for them and the final image of this movie as she goes to get ice cream for her for her sister and her the cops have caught up to the fact that jane hudson is more than likely kidnapped her sister and the police notice her as she's at the ice cream stand and they follow her and they try to basically get her to realize what's going on they're fully aware these are very responsible cops which seems like science fiction right now they uh they they are actively concerned about her mental state of being (laughs) yeah um and that's when a crowd gathers around the beach and if you'll recall in the dialogue boys and girls they used to go to the beach and rehearse their dances for the show when they were kids and Suddenly, Jane sees an audience she hasn't seen in years, and she starts dancing. Dancing. Dancing madly into the morning sun of the beach as she is, as her sister is being looked into to see if she's even still alive. And that's the end of the movie. It's It's so interesting, too, because there's... uh, Did you ever watch BoJack Horseman? I I started it. I haven't finished it yet. Not out of a desire to not watch it. I just... I've been caught up with stuff. (laughs) You have to watch it. It's such a good, I mean, it's, it's like a nice watch because it's so easy to watch and you can kind of almost put it on for background even, but there is like a really strong storyline that if you like stick with it through all of the seasons is so fucking powerful. And like, I don't know. It was, I really enjoyed Bojack. Like, I know it sounds probably insane to be like, this cartoon is like epic, but it did feel to me like, they they hit on some truths and like some of the the writing in there and the monologues he has are just insane like so 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 good and such an accurate reflection also of Hollywood so I think you might enjoy it for that reason as well because our industry is prime I, you know I actually thought about, I actually thought about that when thinking about whatever happened to Baby Jane because it's, uh, effectively it's also about a like a, an aged star like that that's yes. that's the, that's the impetus that kicks it off and i don't think that that narrative has the same heft that it does for comedy if a movie like baby jane doesn't happen you can do it for dramatic purposes in a way that you do with like a star is born but for yeah. comedy and effectively this movie operates in comedic tones as much as it does horror tones as we've said campy is the key word here um you 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 have to have something like whatever happened to baby Jane to set the template. And so with, with, with the ending involved here, this film was the, the prior to this, the fo- the feud between Betty and Joan was nothing more than a kind of a rivalry at Warner brothers. You had, you know, Joan Crawford essentially vying for the position that 
Bet- Betty Davis held at the studio um, and, and all the things that are entailed within that. Um, now, with the reception to this film, there's actually kind of a mixed reception from the critical sense. Bosley Crowther, my arch nemesis, uh, didn't like this movie, <laughs> naturally. Um, he observed that Davis and Crawford do get off some amusing and eventually blood-chilling displays of screaming, sorrel hatred, and general monstrousness. The feeble attempts that Mr. Aldrich has made to suggest the irony of two once idolized and wealthy females living in such depravity and the pathos of their deep-seated envy having brought them to this washed out very quickly under the flood of sheer grotesquerie. There is nothing moving or particularly significant about these two. God damn it. This man just doesn't know what he's fucking talking about. I'm tired of that. God damn it. Um, <laughs> he's dead. I can't do anything about it. But uh, the... But the, there were positive reviews. Variety did state that um, while it found the open uh, the opening a little bit slow and became too much of a uh, uh, too much of a burden, the film becomes an emotional toboggan ride. And although the results heavily favor Davis and she earns all the credit, it should be recognized that the plot of necessity allows her to run unfettered through all the stages of oncoming insanity. Crawford gives a quiet, remarkably fine interpretation of the crippled Blanche held in emotional by uh, held in emotionally by the nature and temperament of the role. So there are people who recognize the brilliance coming out of here. Um, It it uh, I think that this is a film that critics were going to have to learn to love over time, clearly, because this film has become a cult classic. It is a film that people latch onto. The recent assessment has this at 92% at Rotten Tomatoes, stating that it combines powerhouse acting, rich atmosphere, absorbing melodrama in service of a taut thriller with thought-provoking subtext. And what's more, this film cleaned up in some Oscar nominations. You had Best Sound, Best Costume Design, and Best Cinematography for Black and White. Best Supporting Actor, Victor Buono, and only Betty Davis getting a nomination for Best Actress. And this is where some of the feuding starts to kick in because the Betty was nominated for the Best Actress Award for this film. Had she won it, she would have set a record for three wins, which would have been the most for an actress, um, wow. which I believe Meryl Streep now has that record, if I'm correct. Um, but... Uh, According to the book Betty and Joan, the Divine Feud by Sean Considine, uh, Davis and Craw- Crawford's hatred for each other and uh, and their rivalry uh, compelled their, their own actions in this. But a jealous Crawford actively campaigned against Davis winning Best Actress and then told Ban- Anne Bancroft that if Bancroft won and was unable to accept the award, she'd be happy, happily accepted on her behalf. And... On Oscar night, Davis was standing in the wings of the theater waiting to hear the name of the winner. Anne Bancroft's name is announced instead of Betty Davis's, and Joan marches past Davis to accept Anne Bancroft's Oscar. <laughs> wow. That's the extent that this feud took. That this wow. this is where this is where this came. In 1972, Crawford told author Sean Constantine after seeing the film, she urged Davis to go and have a look at it. And when she failed to hear back from her co-star, Crawford called Davis and asked her what she thought of the film. And Davis replied, you were so right, Joan. The picture is good. And I was terrific. (laughs) Crawford said that was it. She never said anything about my performance. Not a word. 
this this is the this is but a but a tip of the iceberg of the bickering. There was one thing they could probably agree upon undeniably um is that what there was a uh, Betty Davis was telling an interviewer that she and Joan being suggested for the leads compelled Warner Brothers own Jack Warner to reply, I wouldn't give a plugged nickel for any one of those two old broads. And Davis laughed at this. And then the following day, she sent a telegram from Crawford. In the pu- in the future, please do not refer to me as an old broad. <laughs> so even while getting something at Joan's expense... She's making a statement against the ageism that Jack Warner was uh, was uh, compounding upon. Um, wow. So this is uh, th- this was kind of th- this was kind of like the end for Crawford in terms of respectable pictures to an extent because um, she she gets she boots herself own self out of hush hush sweet charlotte um and gets replaced by olivia de havilland and hush hush sweet charlotte is a another film by robert altridge that altridge that features betty davis and it was very much made to capitalize on the success of whatever happened to baby jane because it's by the same author of the book and the same screenwriter so i think that Crawford had kind of effectively started digging her own grave at that point because she winds up in a slew of cheaper and cheaper horror movies that don't really utilize her as well as she could, but she still gives it her all. She's a professional. Um, Around this time, she also disinherits her daughter, Christina, and her son from the will, um, which post Davis, which compels Christina to write the book, Mommy Dearest. Um, and her last film is a is a movie called Trog, which I've never seen, but this compels her to just retire. And uh, she dies in 1977. Betty Davis, meanwhile, continued onward into even more successful films. She she had uh, in her later career, in addition to some of the horror films, she was in Death on the Nile in 1978 and a movie called The Whales of August in 1987 with Anne Southern, Lillian wow. Gish, and Vincent Price. So she worked all the way up into 1987 and she died in 1989 at the age of 81. Something of note is that one of her la- latter day projects was uh, involved a television series which had a young man. Um, uh, Abella, have you ever heard of a young man named Steven Spielberg? <laughs> I, no, who's that? I, I, he's just some guy, <laughs> uh, some guy, some kid who was working on the Universal lot, got a directing get it on one of the television shows, and got to work with Miss. Da- yes, he Steven Spielberg directed Betty Davis and something. Yes. Um, wow. Yeah. So the the. She managed to touch people all the way up into 1989. And one thing that can be said about, I will say that Joan Crawford, something that I find, I want to find a positive to end on them because it is, it's very easy to relegate these two to powerful women only concerned with their career and not with their families. I'm not a fan of Crawford. I don't, I don't find her behavior towards her children, the even even remotely redeemable, I will say that Crawford, in her way, was very effective in establishing a path for actresses to stand up for getting roles that they wanted and navigating a career that was successful for them. I honestly think Betty's a little bit more effective in this respect because she did a lot 
to trailblaze. She was the first woman president of the Academy, a position that she resigned from because she clashed with the other representatives of the Academy over the direction because she had bigger and broader ideas. Um, and one of the things that she did that was effective enough to get her one of the highest civilian honors in this country was co-founding the Hollywood Canteen, which is was a venue for food, dancing, and entertainment for servicemen who were about to go overseas. You'd get to have dinner and dancing with the stars. The whole canteen was in uh, the employees were Hollywood stars who donated their time. Betty Davis and John Garfield started that. That's somebody who took the initiative to create something for a community in wartime. And I think that her trailblazing the uh, the the push against the studio contract system ends up paving the way for Olivia to have one to say, no, fuck this shit. I don't want to be in a this kind of contract. And that's what allows Olivia to have one to succeed in this because she's the one who ultimately breaks that contract system. So for all of the negatives that can be attached to their personal lives, whether it's multiple marriages, which I don't even think is a that to me, that's not un, unless there's directly abuse involved by that particular person. You know, multiple marriages happen in Hollywood, but their the behavior toward their children, regardless of this, there is something to look at in terms of what you see today. This is the path that starts for the actresses who want to be represented properly who want to be able to become successful on their own right and not have to be dictated by a man what they need to do. Um, which I think is something that obviously we're st still fighting for in many respects, but arguably has gotten better since Betty and Joan were on the scene. Um, and I wanted to know, Abella, as we're wrapping up, we've talked about a plethora of subjects. And once again, you've brought a really good uh, additional factor that I didn't even see in this conversation initially, which was talking about the current state of Hollywood. But um, although that's the point of this show, that should have been fucking obvious. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, but uh, what what do you take away from this film and from Betty and Joan in particular, do you think? Honestly, I take away that I feel like there's more to know about the whole thing like their whole story. I don't know. Like, I still feel like I've only scratched the surface. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, but I guess like to, you know, out of what I do understand, cause it's just, it's such a, there's so many, it's like every time you kind of take a step into a certain direction with either one of them, it seems like it's tied to another like thing and then another person and like, what is their story? You know? And I'm sure you probably feel like that all the time in doing this podcast because everything is like connected and, cause and effect of like why certain things but yeah i mean i guess my my overall takeaway to answer your question not be totally convoluted is that um it's it's a i mean i felt this way with with uh breakfast at tiffany's too it's a before ahead of its time it's an ahead of its time perspective on mental on like a dynamic of mental health that is obviously age old, but only now are we really starting to like totally understand and, and learn about. Um, I think that there's a lot about sisterhood in, in this, in this film and on, um, oh my gosh, like just like Hollywood in general, I feel like, and mm -hmm. just like the dynamics of like the, the mind fuck that can happen, you know, with 
fame and with success and like sort of the, um, uh, the kind of false identity that like we can kind of anchor into our personal successes and, you know, our, our perceived like value, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like if you took that out of it, (laughs) there would be no conflict. Right. And I, I agree with all that. And I'll add one more that I think has, because we've talked about the ways this this film has found itself into elements of the modern. Um, the big one that I want to bring it back to is the movie itself and specifically the work of Robert Aldrich. And I know it's, I, I know it seems weird on this show to bring it back to the man's attention, but, you know, Robert Aldrich doesn't get talked about a lot. He's an efficient director who, uh, who was a work, was a workhorse director, like, made a plethora of films and he made them the way he wanted to make them when his last film was all the marbles in 1981 among his other films post baby Jane were the dirty dozen, uh, the Grissom gang, the longest yard, uh, the original, the longest yard and the Frisco kid, which had Gene Wilder and Harrison Ford, which not everybody likes that movie. I think it's fine. Um, but you know what he did that I think is interesting is that he kicked off an entire slew and movement of films in Hollywood that we still seem today, because how often do we see older actors get a comeback through horror? And one that allows people when they watch those movies with this older actor to be like, well, say, I'd love to know what this person did before this. Like what did Karen black do before she was in house of a thousand corpses? Like, which, you know, is like one of the many examples that you can give towards this or, um, you know, who is Catherine Keener before she was in Get Out? You know, um, uh, Bradley Whitford in Get Out, by the way. What What is he doing before that? Oh, he was the bad guy in Billy Madison. <laughs> like, you know, that that kind of fun thing that you can do with actors when you put when they get this resurgence in horror films, it does compel people to go back to why would anybody cast them in the first place? Not just for the name recognition, but also, frankly, because they have something to give. And Betty Davis and Joan Crawford actively proved that they weren't going to be pushed out of Hollywood that easily. They weren't going to go down without a fight. And this subgenre of horror where older, uh, like old, older, older people are represented in this regretful delusional form is an industry unto itself that you can still see in various forms and fashions. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it's interesting. Cause it's like, I think a lot of um, stars were at that time were definitely dealing with also wanting to push back on that. I think as people have gotten older and like the industry has been around longer, people have just accepted like, well, this is what it is. So just, you know, with the exception of like some, you know, some folks like, like, uh, uh, oh my God, why am I blinking on her name? <laughs> what What is like the best actress ever that literally cannot fuck up? She's just um, well, oh I, I usually say Meryl Streep, but <laughs> Meryl Streep. Thank you. That's yeah. exactly what I was thinking. Of. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Meryl Streep has like done some like, you know, she's, she's like a gentle pusher. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting because initially like that started like with Ava Gardner too, you know, like there's like this kind of, this kind of like the women back then were actually pretty like, fuck you guys. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It just didn't get, it wasn't as loud, I think. 
you know, people didn't know about it as much because we didn't have like TMZ, you know? Well, and I think also that the, the history books were predominantly written by men for a certain era, like for a certain time, they were predominantly written by men. And so now we're starting to see the full extent. Um, we, we have the benefit of living in a world where we have a lot of the information to show that they were powerful figures. And that's often why they resurge as powerful icons to IDIs. Um, you know, it, I think that something that Betty and Joan have carried on into into the lexicon is they are two of the names in Golden Age Hollywood that you will never forget. As long as this industry exists, you will never forget those two names because, as said, no matter how vile they were as people, whether it's Joan abusing her daughter uh, and her children or Betty abusing her children with emotional manipulation rather than physical, you know, the the impact that they made on the screen and really in a time when this kind of abuse wasn't fully spoken of they've cemented their legacies to a point where they're beyond any reproach from the modern standard but at the same time it's kind of like hitchcock you can still look back into it and dissect for yourself where your opinion lies with them but undeniably those screen images betty davis eyes there's a song about betty davis and her eyes it's like been playing in my head this entire time and I like can't it, stop. This movie may have to end with Betty Davis eyes because I'm already going to put the no wire hangers ever line somewhere in this episode. But um, <laughs> but yeah, that's you call this a movie. You, you just said this movie might have to end. That the, way, oh, this, po- this podcast. Sorry. Yeah, they, they all blend this together. Is a movie. This is a movie. You, Bella, we're, Bella and I are in a movie um, yes. <laughs> starring uh, starring just us. Nobody else. But yeah. uh, but uh, yeah, um, no, I, I do think that like it, they carry so much into the lexicon that they 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 summarized certain pop pockets of 80s culture. And today they predominate a lot of the content that you see on TCM. Uh, their movies are readily available. They they haven't gone anywhere and they likely will never go anywhere. Um, and on that note, Abella, I want to thank you again for coming on to the Ballyhoo really quickly. Let people know where they can find you. Let you know what. Let them know what you've got coming up. And of course, we're going to have you back. And you mentioned Ava Gardner. I think we got to get you on for an Ava Gardner movie. I think that would be Ooh, a fun. Ava, yeah. yes, I would love that. She's she is a wild one. Mm-hmm. That Ava dated Howard wow. Hughes, but that's for another story. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So you guys can find me on uh, Instagram, abellabala.tv. You can also find me on um, your local prize picks commercial. <laughs> I have a commercial <laughs> airing right now. It's so funny. It's like they're like putting they're putting it on a lot. So everybody like all my friends just like will send me like screenshots of my face at like awkward angles and it's really fun. <laughs> so if you know me, if you're a friend, send those over. Those are fun putting together a a collage um no uh yeah so i don't know like right what else am i working on right now um what else do i have going on well i'm taking a break from auditioning oh yeah so hopefully soon by the next time that i get on here hopefully i'll have some tour dates announced some show dates yay good announced. Well, oh, so you know what cool. i think i think if we can arrange it i need to come to see one of those live shows and then record an episode with you in in the state of california like, that, that would be that would be awesome, Zach. I would love that. I would also love, 
I actually think I'd like to come do a show in Colorado. <gasps> Ooh, even better. I and don't maybe... have to buy a plane ticket. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I might wait till like after it's cold, but yeah. like, Oh yeah. No. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to come here right now. It's, it's, it's a fucking nightmarish frozen hell right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I remember it well. Yeah. But thank you so much, Abella. And this is going to wrap it up for this episode of the yesteryear Ballyhoo review. You can find out more about us on the back end of the show. A couple of announcements coming up. Um, I will be at, uh, part of the Jack Benny convention again coming up in 2022. Uh, the dates are February 12th and 13th. Uh, I can't say exactly what's happening yet, but I can tell you that I might be treading some familiar ground again uh, with a similar guest uh, that I had the privilege of working with at that convention last time. So stay tuned for that. Um, coming up on the show, uh, we are going to have a discussion on The Horn Blows at Midnight, Jack Benny's last ever starring motion picture. And funnily enough, thanks to the research that um, has been conducted recently, um, this movie has a lot of tie-ins to the COVID-19 situation. But you're going to have to stay tuned to hear all about that. And additionally, you will be starting to hear more for the Jacques Tati discussion, where uh, Sterling Cook and I are going through the entire filmography of Jacques Tati. And last but not least, Tyler Maybe and I have been talking about doing a Disney discussion on the package features that were made in the mid-40s to keep the studio afloat. So we'll be talking about that, and I think we're going to try to get on a return guest for that as well and make it a big bonanza of Disney goodness. So stay tuned for that. But until all of this and until next time, folks, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Oh, my God.